This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. And thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Craft. You're listening to episode 136. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really does help spread the microcap message. Uh, just, you know, a little background I'm messing with today, planet microcap, pl- planets, you know, I think that's earth, who knows? I mean, you know, thought we'd play around a little bit, but, you know, I, I wanted to start off and, you know, for anybody who's listening to this, if you watch it on YouTube, I'm talking about our, my video background, but anyways, um, I, I wanted to start off with a quick shout out to, uh, Brandon Balo, who is the host of the Value Hive podcast. Uh, he invited me on his show uh, to do an interview and it was just a, a ton of fun. You know, it was really cool um, to have the opportunity to kind of be on the other side of the mic. Um, I rarely ever do that. And so it was, it was really, really fun, you know, to really share with all of you some of the lessons that I've learned from the 130 plus interviews that you've heard on here and the thousand plus CEO interviews that I've done over the years. So thank you, Brandon. Big fan of the show and everybody listening, I invite you all to go and check that out. I believe you can listen to Value High Podcasts wherever podcasts are available. The SNN Podcast Network is full steam ahead this week. Uh, First up, that uh, was published on, uh, I guess it was Monday, late Monday, early Tuesday morning, was uh, Avoiding the Crowd with Maj Suedan. This latest episode features his first stock pitch. You know, I would tell you the, the name, and, uh, but, but where's the fun in that? So, so go check that out, uh, th- this week's episode on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or Podbean at avoidingthecrowd.podbean.com. And for this week's episode of In the Market Trenches with Gary and Eric, I will spoil uh, this one for you a little bit as they'll be sharing uh, an investing experience uh, that actually turned out to uh, you know, work out. And the story for that one is on uh, MMA Capital, MMAC on NASDAQ. Um, Like I said, some that actually worked out and some more stories end up being about battles that you do, uh, you win. So go check that out uh, uh, this week's episode on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or Podbean at inthemarkettrenches.podbean.com. Then tune in this Friday morning to watch the latest episode of the Investors Roundtable. Every week, you never know who might be joining the panel or what topic will be discussed. Uh, Just have to tune in every Friday and find out. Subscribe to the SNN Network YouTube channel at youtube.com slash SNN Wire. Now, 
for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast. I spoke with Ryan O'Connor. He's the founder and portfolio manager at Crossroads Capital. If you love investing, like really love the game, this is an episode for you. From his family ties to Warren Buffett, to his starting Crossroads Capital, and then taking the time to explain in thorough detail his Nintendo thesis, um, really a masterclass on breaking down your investment. Um, this episode has it all if you too are a lover of the game. So thank you again for tuning in to episode 136 of the Planet Microcap podcast. And without further ado, please enjoy my interview with Ryan O'Connor. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. And joining me for this episode out in space, because we're Planet Microcap, so we're going to have a space background. But joining me right now is Ryan O'Connor. He is the founder and portfolio manager at Crossroads Capital. Ryan, it's a pleasure, man. Thank you for joining me today. Hey, man. Thank you. Thank you. Long time coming. I'd say so myself. How's everything going? Everything's cool. What's going on in Kansas City? Uh, it's good. It's good. You know, same old, same old. Uh, you know, not too bad here. We uh, we don't have it as we're not on full lockdown. You know, like you guys are out in LA. Uh, and you know, I have uh, two small business interests in New York and, and LA. So you know, I spend a lot of time you know thinking about how lucky we are in some sense relative to. Um, you know, the, my buddy in New York were described it as Chernobyl as a, uh, bar owner. So, uh, could be worse, you know, can't complain. Yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. <laughs> well, I mean, look, it's, I, I think it's starting to, I think, I, you know, I think the last few days it's everything's starting to go down case count wise, but you know, we'll, we'll see, we'll see. I mean, LA it's, it's weird. You've been to LA many times, so, you know, it's like, it's, it's the most spread out big city in ever. So it's, it's, it's like, it's weird. Like you don't like there's pockets where it is. And it's, you know, it's it just, still baffles me, you know, how business gets done in you know, LA, I mean, you know, you could wake up if you're in, <laughs> if you're in Venice, you know, how do you plan for a lunch, you know, like a noon lunch meeting, you know, in Silver Lake, you know, I mean, you could be, you hit traffic at the wrong time. It could take you three hours. It could take you one. Um, yeah, oh, there, there's uh, a whole different calculus that just starts going through. Right, you're, like, right, right. you're like, on one hand, it's like, okay, I got to start base case. Everything takes 20 minutes to get to. All right, so now I got to think time frame, like traffic here, there, and it's well. Uh, I mean, it's like you, you, it, the you, the margin of safety you have to build in to to make <laughs> you're there every time. You know, is so absurd. I don't know how. I mean, maybe you have one meeting a day, but yeah, you, know, <laughs> you know, that's. It's tough, but obviously yeah, people, you know, figure it out. So, you know, it's a great city, you know, for the that's most why, that's part. Why, that's why so much gets done here, right? I mean, you know, right. it's, it's constantly. All right, dude. Well, let's dig in, man. Um, this is your first time on here. Um, I, I, and as we do, we, we love to start with everyone's background. So, you know, Ryan, you know, where, when and where did your passion for investing begin? So um, that's a, a great question. Um, you know, for the most part, you know, it really began. Uh, so, you know, one thing that's kind of cool um, that kind of sparked the fire in me was that my grandfather was actually one of the original partners in the uh, original Buffett partnerships. So 
Um, they had uh, played poker together, um, and my grandfather worked for IBM at the time. So uh, he had he was a, he was a legend amongst his you know the local IBMers in Omaha because he was the first person to sell Buffett a typewriter, which. Uh, you know, even then he was notoriously, uh, uh, you know, uh, tight with his wallet and people were mesmerized by, uh, his ability to, uh, uh, you know, convince him to, uh, pony up for lack of a better term. But so, so yeah, it started, you know, uh, forever ago. In fact, wait, you know, Ryan, hold on real quick. I got to follow up on that. Did he, did he give you, did he tell you if Buffett had any tells when he was playing poker? I mean, come on, man. Let's, let's get that. Like, no, 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 no. I, uh, you know, I, I, in fact, uh, I wish I, you know, would have gotten that question in, but no, he, uh, I'll tell you that, you know, if you want a, a good story though. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Let's go. Yeah, so, come on. So you gotta, you gotta kind of port yourself back to the mid fifties and, you know, if you ever want a lesson on, you know, the difference between optics and reality, um, I think, you know, this is kind of a, a pretty great way to, uh, you know, frame the question. But so, you know, my dad can still remember when my grandfather came back home from work um, and I think they had six kids at the time um, and they'd go on to have 10. Um, and so, you know, my dad, my grandfather sat down for dinner and proceeded to tell the family uh, that, you know, he was going to liquidate his IBM holdings, which, you know, you got to remember, I mean, this is even like pre nifty 50 IBM. It was, it was technology, you know, as far as business was concerned. Um, so, you know, very much like say an Apple or Google of today. Um, and, you know, he had, he basically said, I'm going to, to liquidate all of our IBM and, you know, invest with my, you know, poker buddy named Warren. Well, as you can imagine, my grandma burst into tears pretty much, you know, on the spot, convinced that, you know, the kid's college education was going away and, you know, who is this guy and, you know, you know, this, that and the other. And this, you know, kind of all, and it's funny because my grandma in time was, you know, you know, Warren's biggest fan and absolutely fell in love with him. But when he came over to our house to get the, you know, at that time there was no street and he had to actually pick up the physical certificates. So when he came over to my uh, grandparents' house, you know, my grandmother didn't know what to expect. I mean, you, you think, uh, you know, probably not that far off from what you think of like a Wall Street investment banker today, you know, uh, you know, 6'2", good looking, you know, nice suit, um, you know, the whole, uh, you know, kind of dog and pony thing. And, you know, the doorbell rings and my grandmother goes out, you know, to open up the door and Warren's standing up there and, and you know, remember that this is pre-Toastmasters Buffett. So, you know, he wasn't the master of the crowd, you know, that we kind of associate with him today. He was, you know, kind of a meek, geeky, you know, uh, guy that when she opened up the door, his hair was completely disheveled. She said his suit looked like it had been curled up in a little ball and tossed in the corner of a room. Um, and, you know, the point being, like, it was immediate and total shock, not what she had expected from, you know, her husband saying, you know, this is a guy, you know. Well, you know, let's go all in with this guy. You know, it wasn't what, uh, uh, if you were into show an image, you know, Warren wasn't your guy. Uh, let me put it that right. way. Uh, so, right. uh, so, you know, Warren comes in and proceeds to do his rule of 72 thing. Um, and, you know, uh, the, you know, quick and short of it, the entire time she said, she's just trying, you know, about to have a panic attack the entire time. She can't even hear you know, what's going on. She, you know, think of like a Simpsons episode where it's like, you know, like, like that. And, you know, once Warren was done, you know, he had, he said, Hey, Bill, can I get the stock certificates? So Warren had to go and reach out to grab them. And when he did his shirt cuff, 
or uh, uh, yeah, came out and was completely frayed around the edges. And so she said that was when it was, you know, full scale, whole, you know, my God, what are we doing? But, you know, don't worry for her. It, it turned out quite well, you know, in the end. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, uh, even back then, um, you know, one of the things that had kind of mystified me by my grandfather was, you know, his, and, and through talking to him, you know, and, and, and kind of peeling that onion back, it actually doesn't surprise me, but to the outside world, it looked totally, you know, batshit insane. I mean, you know, from, there's no other way to put it. Um, and, you know, and it was still, I think, you know, five or six years before Buffett really became like a, almost like a state secret, you know, when people would pass his name around, um, you know, kind of in awe. But, you know, in the, those early days, it wasn't, um, it wasn't, uh, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Let me put it that way. So anyhow, how did I get, you know, involved in investing? Um, that was a great story, by the way. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, you know, that's, it's, you know, really just a function of, of, you know, a couple things, but mainly, you know, my grandfather was very much, you know, uh, when I was a kid, I'd get, you know, 10,000 different versions of the acorn grows into a tree metaphor. And then, um, you know, when I got a little older, I remember for my 10th birthday, I got a copy of the richest man in Babylon and, uh, you know, started to teach me about the rule of 72. And, and so there was definitely, you know, that sense, um, you know, like from, of, you know, being a re really young, I can remember, you know, kind of hearing the name and, and understanding on some level the importance he had to my family. But by the time I got to high school, um, you know, it just <laughs> kind of dazzled me. Um, you know, when I looked at, you know, I have like, you know, 60 first cousins, uh, you know, I have a very large family. And, to see what one man could do, you know, to, you know, kind of the arc of our family's, you know, um, evolution, if you will. I mean, my grandfather was able to not only give enormous amounts to charity, you know, he, he paid for all of our private education, you know, generations down the line. I mean, you know, if, if when they put me in a pine box, I, you know, have accomplished, you know, 10% of, you know, what, uh, you know, my grandfather was able to accomplish for my family, um, I think I'll have lived a good life. Um, and you know, that's, you know, where Buffett comes in. I mean, it just, uh, I always wanted to be able to, to serve someone and to make, you know, uh, people, you know, to, to make possible, you know, what, you know, he was able to make possible for my own. So, uh, kind of cheesy, but you know, nonetheless, 100% true. Uh, and so, that was kind of the kind of the beginning. And when I knew, you know, I always kind of knew that, you know, I wanted to do something with respect to investing from a pretty young age. So, um, you know, I guess that that's my quick and dirty, you know, quick and dirty answer to that. Gotcha. I mean, so then, so then from that initial inspiration that it's, I mean, look, let's call a spade a spade. It was in the jeans, you know, I mean, <laughs> find, Hey, find, finding, uh, finding Buffett before he became Buffett. I mean, that's uh, there's a lot of analogies there to finding uh, quality True. companies True. before they even have any kind of real following. I mean, I sure, that's sure, a, sure. I, maybe I'm, maybe no I'm taking it to a degree. I mean, we're talking no, about no, Buffett, no, no. of course. But, no, no, you know. no, I'm no Buffett, uh, you know, number one. But I, I will say that, uh, um, you know, in, you know, to, you know, my grandmother's point, he would take his classes in Omaha. Uh, but I think that's kind of, you know, one of the things that, you know, unlocked, um, you know, kind of who Warren was and, and what he 
brought to not only, you know, uh, the investing table, but, you know, uh, what inspired the conviction in him was sitting there and hearing, you know, thing, you know, hearing Buffett break down something like Sanborn map, you know, I mean, there's a variety of case studies you could go through, but where, you know, you're, you're buying a stock that trades at $10, you know, with an operating business that spits out $5 in cash and has, you know, just making numbers up $25 in excess investments uh, where, you know, you just, you, you don't have to be necessarily a genius um, to recognize that, you know, buying uh, a business, you know, at 70 cents on the dollar and getting, you know, uh, a double, you know, or, you know, some multiple of your money in, you know, excess cash and bonds and stocks is a good, you know, deal. Uh, and so, you know, the, I think where they connected was, was two things and, and I, two things that I've always, you know, um, you know, felt similarly, you know, they say value investing is inoculation, you either get the idea of buying 50 cents for a dollar or you don't. Um, that was definitely there. Um, but you know, my grandfather was also very much, you know, uh, in love with the magic of compounding. Uh, but you know, he had a saying, pay yourself before pay you, before you pay others always, no matter what, uh, you know, uh, and you know, that was just simply the admonition to always make sure you're putting money away intelligently compounding while you sleep. Uh, you know, if you've got people are calling you about bills, who cares, pay yourself, you know, uh, whatever it is, always put money in first with every paycheck. And, you know, I think between the, his inherent thriftiness and kind of just awe at what was possible when you, you know, stoop around and kind of the most inefficient pockets of the capital markets. Um, those two things have always been, um, have always kind of hit me. The power of that has always kind of hit me the way they hit my grandfather and, and obviously the way they hit Buffett. So very cool. Very cool. All right. So let's fill the gap real quick, you know, because we got a lot to get to in terms of sure. your investing strategy, philosophy. We got some more fun stories to get to. And listen, anytime you got another Buffett story that you want to throw in there, I know my audience will love to hear it. I love to hear it. This is, it's, great, it's great shit. Come on now. But, but let, let's, fill, let's fill the gap. So you, you're, you, you had this initial, initial inspiration. You love investing. You realize you want, you want to make this your life's work in some capacity. So from there to founding Crossroads Capital, you know, what was your journey to, to that point? Yeah. So uh, actually, you know, one thing that was unique about me versus when I look at you know, a lot of my peers and colleagues and uh, uh, it was, uh, you know, uh, something I didn't realize till later, but was actually similar to the way Buffett had started out. So in college, I had interned for Smith Barney, uh, at two kind of, you know, big, brokers at the time. Um, and, and for, you know, as much as I knew that was, you know, kind of the industry. So, uh, uh, there was that, and I had a buddy that traded options. Uh, and so, uh, initially I began trading options at the mercantile exchange, um, after getting out of school quickly realized, uh, that that was nothing short of insane, um, on multiple levels. And, you know, I was, tried to figure out how to extract myself from that. And I ended up going and doing what I did in college, which was be a, becoming a broker or a financial consultant. So, uh, uh, which, you know, Buffett, you know, was one similarly. And, and part of, you know, kind of my own evolution was I was very lucky very early on and uh, was able to acquire uh, a handful of clients with, um, you know, substantial, I didn't have to worry about, um, bringing new clients in because I had enough assets, um, you know, and, you know, my production levels were uh, well above where they needed to be. And, and that was nice because, you know, it gave me the opportunity. It was then where I really 
I remember reading, you can be a stock market genius. And it was just, you know, like that, you know, everything changed uh, in a way that, you know, I was always kind of inherently a value investor, but um, you know, it was that book that, that kind of, you know, uh, kickstarted a chain reaction of epiphanies that, you know, turned me into the guy that, you know, wants to, you know, read, you know, eight hours a day and, and all that stuff. So um, because I had had a fair amount of success, um, you know, kind of coming out of the gate, you know, in financial consulting, I was able to, you know, and I didn't have to go out and build new clients. I was a number able to read all day. And two, um, you know, I had the, the inherent kind of conflicts of interest in, in the brokerage business, you know, layering, layering on fees upon fees upon fees. Um, you know, I've always, you know, been kind of, truth has always mattered to me. Um, and the more I kind of, you know, familiarized myself with the industry and, you know, its nature. And, you know, there's a lot of great financial consultants that are wonderful people and that, and they work hard and they want their best for their clients. But, um, you know, it was kind of this combination of things that where I kind of really found my vocation and I wanted to become an analyst. So, um, you know, it was from there that, uh, um, uh, I ended up, um, you know, long story short is from there, I went and I worked for, um, you know, a, a couple firms locally, a family office, um, uh, a firm uh, out of San Francisco. I ran a sleeve of one of the partners there's funds, but um, it wasn't until um, I was, uh, uh, I had a family out of DC that I invested in emerging managers and I, I started a blog, you know, forever ago uh, that I never imagined anyone would ever read or care about. And I, I did it primarily just as a, uh, uh, a way to do postmortems to, to keep myself honest and to, to write my thinking down and, and to go back and um, be able to look at it, you know, you know, six, 12 months later and, and hopefully learn. Well, somehow, some way, I think there was a, a Wall Street Journal article linked to it and there was a couple other higher profile things. And then all of a sudden within six months, you know, some of my heroes were, um, subscribing to it. And that was, you know, uh, critical because it, you know, I was one, I was very young Two, I was anonymous. Um, and so, you know, with the blog, you know, it was able as someone with a non-traditional background. I mean, you know, a lot of my closest friends, you know, my business partners are, you know, Harvard and, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, they, they're about as credentialed as they could come. Um, I think that that allowed my work to kind of stand on its own. And, you know, I was able to build up a network of individuals um, that along with, you know, getting into value investors club that, um, you know, just made, you know, it's, it's almost impossible to, you know, um, try and measure the difference that that made in me and as an investor. I mean, when you wake up and you, you want to post an idea, you know, it's kind of like your art, right. And you're revealing it to the world and, you know, whether it's in VICs, like, you know, you know, 500 of the smartest investors on the planet or 2,500 value geeks around the world trying to pull your pants down, um, you know, showing you, you know, where you're wrong and why, um, you know, that tends to up your game. And, you know, so it was a combination of, of you know, just uh, going and, and working for some other family offices and wealthy individuals and, and you know, putting my work out there, writing, um, you know, and, you know, just kind of becoming a part of the community that, you know, continue to serve me today and is continually kind of up my game. So to answer your question, um, you know, I had a family from DC that was familiar with, you know, some of my uh, work from the blog and uh, another close friend of mine had um, forwarded on some other stuff. And, you know, they had 
liked it enough to approach me to, you know, kind of to start my own fund. Uh, and they were really wonderful. I mean, at first just being, um, naturally cautious about, you know, uh, diving in and, and trusting these individuals because, you know, obviously, um, you know, you, they seed you and you kind of go out and, you know, uh, bet your future on this. You want to make sure they're the right people. So, uh, you know, I'd set it up. I, I kind of built a bunch of tells into the, um, uh, you know, the, uh, follow-up meeting, which was, you know, I put in a three-year lockup things that, you know, they would most certainly balk at if we were, you know, not aligned in terms of both being, you know, having an owner's mindset and a long-term orientation and, you know, a bunch of stuff like that, which, you know, depending on how they would react to it, uh, would tell me a lot about whether, you know, it was something worth, you know, jumping in on and, and they passed with flying colors and, you know, here we are, you know, let's see here, uh, you know, almost five years later, um, from that day. And, uh, it's been a, it's been a wild ride. So, you know, so far so good. Ah, very good. Very good. Well, we're, we're going to get into some of that performance a little bit later and talking about, um, both a recent letter that you wrote and, and, uh, a featured, uh, presentation that you did for MOI, but let, let's give the audience a kind of the, what, the crossroads capital investing philosophy, and then how, how that philosophy then manifests it, manifested itself in the form of your strategy. So sure. with that, look, to prepare, you sent me some, some great collateral. I got to tell I know we were talking about it this offline, but man, you're a <laughs> prolific writer. I mean, I, I, I'm going through stuff. I'm like, oh man, like I, I, I need a couple of days, you know, but, uh, but it's, it's, it's really good stuff. I, but Thank you. My, my like editors, that. my editors would thank you. Uh, you know, they, I've got a lot of friends that take time to make it far better than it would be if, uh, you know, if I was left to my own devices, but I appreciate that. So for sure, the crossroads strategy, uh, you know, I hate, you know, one thing I always, you know, personally find lame is when, you know, a value investor just continually brings up Buffett and Buffett this, you know, it makes me kind of want to punch myself in the nuts for lack of a better term. But, um, <laughs> you know, uh, in this case, uh, you know, because of, you know, I mean, it's just the truth that, you know, the uh, from I had access to the Buffett uh, limited partnership letters, um, you know, very, very early before they were kind of widely distributed. And I was always fascinated by um, you know, people, most people today know Buffett as the kind of, uh, you know, the buy and hold forever, you know, personification, you know, of, of, you know, this type of his strategy. Well, when he was younger, um, and he had a much smaller asset base, he ran money, you know, in a very different way. Um, and, uh, the truth is, is that, you know, you know, the basic framework for which we manage money, um, you know, is, you know, very much in line. I mean, there's a few small differences, you know, he was a control investor, um, you know, pretty much from the beginning, um, you know, maybe that is a tool in the toolbox that, you know, we utilize later down the road, but we're not small enough or we're, uh, we're not big enough, um, you know, to do uh, a lot of the things that he was able to do and, you know, with micro caps in the fifties and, and early sixties. Um, but, you know, long story short is, you know, we look for uh, uh, two types of, you know, broad categories of investments. Um, one is what Buffett called generals, which is, you know, your 
you know, I, uh, you know, generally undervalued businesses, you know, I would refer to them as wonderful businesses at, uh, you know, wonderful prices as opposed to, you know, fair prices. Um, and then the other is special situations or, or workouts is what he called them. And, you know, the idea with, you know, the second quarter category of investments is that these are primarily event driven um, and they are, you know, shorter duration. You know, there is some event or a series of internal or external events looking out over, say, the next 12 to, you know, six to 18 months that should drive the convergence of price and value. So, uh, you know, with the first category are, are you know, what he called the generals um, or what I would call, you know, wonderful businesses at wonderful prices. You know, those were, you know, highly concentrated large positions that, you know, would typically, you know, ebb and flow with the markets and special situations um, were, you know, uh, Graham called them securities on a timetable. You know, you knew uh, what was, you know, going to make them work and when. Um, and that that part of the portfolio provided a lot of downside protection when markets, you know, were down. So, um, you know, in good markets, the, the first category would do, you know, uh, most of the heavy lifting in bad markets, uh, you know, the, that event-driven special sit side of his portfolio um, would, you know, act as, you know, kind of uh, uh, would protect the cap, his capital and the portfolio during downturns. So, you know, one of the things that he harps on in his letter again and again, and, you know, uh, uh, in his early days, and that I think is remarkable about his track record is um, he never had a down year. Uh, and he would constantly uh, impress upon his partners that, you know, in, you know, difficult market, you know, if in raging bull markets were going to underperform and because it was because of the special situation side that he said that he thought they would always, you know, outperform during down markets. So that in a quick and dirty nutshell is the kind of the basic framework um, within all of, um, you know, uh, you kind of blow that out, you know, whether it's a special situation or a, or a general, uh, we typically, you know, uh, we, we keep our search strategy focused on, you know, inefficient pockets of the capital market. So, um, you know, kind of from the beginning, you know, one of the first questions, you know, we have always asked ourselves is, you know, why is it mispriced? And, you know, that kind of leads the search strategy is, you know, let's turn over as many rocks as we can in areas where, um, you know, the market is, you know, kind of structurally more likely to spit out, you know, 50 cent dollars. Um, so we start there, um, you know, with that kind of high level mindset. And then we, um, you know, we, we want to find, you know, the great businesses before, you know, most people haven't found them. I mean, we're, we're very concentrated. Um, and so, you know, we, we're only looking for three or four ideas a year max. And, you know, when we find them, um, you know, we like to take the most, you know, make, make it the most of them. And then we have, you know, the special sit side, which turns over more, but, um, you know, it's, it's kind of following this broad rubric that, that Buffett kind of, you know, Buffett took from Graham and made it his own, uh, you know, tailored it to his own style. Um, we've tried to kind of do the same. Uh, you know, obviously I, I started this with prefacing. I kind of started in options. Um, and so, you know, that's one way in which we've kind of made, uh, you know, uh, the uh, standing on the shoulders of, of you know, these greater individuals and, and tried to make it our own is by, you know, layering on, you know, uh, kind of options to find kind of compound mispricings, which is not only when you have the underlying mispriced, but the options, you know, should they be available, they're mispriced as well. So, 
um, you know, basically we follow the Buffett model and, 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 you know, kind of leverage our own unique skill sets that we've built over the years to, um, you know, uh, we're not trying to mirror Buffett exactly, but, you know, we operate in a similar spirit. So, so when you are, you know, turning over all the rocks and you're, uh, whether you're doing your screens or whatever, what have you to, to go through and find your breadth of companies that you potentially might be interested because they hit all the metrics. Let's say you got your, your four or five that hit all the metrics that you're looking for. It's in your sweet spot. You know what then, what's that, what's that gap between, all right, they hit the sweet spot to starting to, to build a position. You know, what are the things then that you do to get to that conviction? So um, it's tough to, to kind of give a, a canned, um, uh, you know, I, it depends, uh, obviously. You know, most of our very large positions have become very large because, you know, we, as we've gotten to know, you know, the business better, the management team better, as they've executed, you know, not only has the stock, re, you know, uh, you know, appreciated. Um, but in many cases, the, you know, true value of the business has grown much faster than the actual appreciation. So, uh, you know, uh, all of our large positions, you know, that, you know, a lot of the times we won't add to them and supersize them, you know, until a year or two after we've already owned it. And, you know, you have a scenario where the stars, you know, you know, converge or align in a way where um, something really, you know, extraordinary happens and you get a chance to kind of load the boat. You know, Nintendo would be um, an example of where we did that, where we did not own it for years beforehand. But um, uh, so I don't know, am I answering your question? Uh, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, this, this, this is kind of what I'm getting at. I mean, it's that, it's that, you know, it's, it's pretty interesting, you know, when doing this event, doing this, event, doing this podcast for as long as I have, you know, you have your, your, your Buffettites, your Lynchites, you know, it's all, everybody more or less has deviations, but more or less similar ways in which they go about and looking uh, uh, for potential investments. But then what's, what's always been interesting to me is then filling that gap is understanding, okay, I have, I have my metrics. I have my list of companies. It's in the sector that I like, you know, it hits all the boxes, nice insider ownership, you know, big moat. Here we go. You know, from there it's all right. What's the qualitative, um, I guess the qualitative data or qualitative, qualitative well, metrics for oh, you that you're then like, all right. Here so, we go. Yeah, right. Right. So, um, you know, it's not that necessarily there's any one, but I will say this, that, you know, I think that, you know, uh, the ability to dig up original qualitative insights uh, is kind of the, the soul, the heart and soul of the ability to generate alpha. I mean, especially in a world like today where, you know, information and, you know, access to information is ubiquitous. You know, it's not like the 50s where, you know, Buffett was driving around to insurance, state insurance commissions and would have this kind of ocean of, of you know, uh, of, of information, you know, of, of data that other people weren't seeing or aware of. Um, so, you know, that's one, you know, especially given our small and micro cap focus, um, you know, I think, you know, and this would be, this would be one area where I think a lot of uh, uh, value investors that focus in the space, you know, they have a lot of conviction and mean reversion um, uh, with respect to say like, you know, our most comparable be benchmarks, the Russells. Um, I'm not so sure 
that this time isn't really different um, for a lot of reasons. And, you know, there's a, there's a big chunk, you know, we, we had an original letter uh, uh, done, you know, towards the end of February and then the world changed five times over. And, um, you know, we're about to release something very, very different from that. But, you know, one of the first aspects of, or one of the first iterations of the letter was, was discussing this, issue of, you know, uh, mean reversion and, you know, does French, you know, I, you know, I kind of get annoyed when people define value investing as statistically cheap stocks based on their earnings power through the rear view, um, uh, as opposed to figuring out what something's worth and paying a lot less. Uh, there's a big distinction there. And I'm not saying that I don't believe, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, we get that, you know, kind of historic mean reversion, given how far, given the disconnect between all things small value and large liquid, you know, mega cap growth. Um, you know, I, I'm not saying that I think that can go on forever, but I do think, you know, the rise of indexation, you know, um, you know, uh, monetary and fiscal largesse, you know, the, the trends that, you know, I think have created this giant, you know, uh, um, you know, vortex of, you know, sucking capital, you know, away from, you know, the, you know, all things small value and liquid towards, you know, things more larger liquid and growth orientated. I mean, for example, in microcaps, I love, you know, almost in every case, we will have managers who we believe in, we think they're excellent, you know, capital allocators and, and you know, smart strategic thinkers, you know, they're going to have typically own, you know, an enormous amount of, you know, the float. And therefore, they're not going to be in indices. And, um, you know, they're, you know, these structural factors and, and kind of trends that have been driving these markets for the last 13 years, um, you know, the, the companies that, you know, fit kind of the model we look for have faced kind of continuous multiple compression, um, you know, because of, of their inside ownership, because they aren't big and liquid enough to, you know, uh, kind of benefit from the liquidity flywheel of indexation and, and those kind of broad secular trends. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, one thing that I think is critical, you know, especially in the small and micro cap value spaces, you know, you have to evolve to succeed. And, you know, one of the things as we've watched these, you know, one of the ways we've been able to do so well, even amidst, you know, uh, we'll call it the small cap value winter, um, is because, you know, many years, I mean, it really from the, the get-go when we started the fund, I had witnessed way too many bizarre, um, you know, uh, pricing distortions. It seemed to me even back then that, you know, the market's discounting mechanism at, you know, the smaller, more, less liquid spaces, the capital markets was starting to break. And, you know, uh, uh, you know, we'd have qualitatively good businesses that were growing, um, run by owner operators with, you know, attractive paper trails and, you know, their multiple, you know, would you, they were 50, you know, say they were 60 cents on the dollar, you know, instead of that converging, they'd be at 40 cents on the dollar. And, you know, for the longest time, I think, you know, you know, how is this, you know, this is just, you know, it just never sat right. In fact, I wrote an article, uh, for, uh, John Mihalovic years ago, uh, called storm. I think this was the end of 2016, which basically was an argument that, um, you know, that, uh, uh, that the, the giant mispricings that were available were because of these indexation tailwinds and whatnot were going to be in the smaller places where we live. But um, because I've never 
you know, hope is not a strategy and the underlying drivers that were propelling these trends, you know, to this day, I see no clear catalyst or, or set of circumstances that are going to reverse them. Um, you know, we kind of adjusted our strategy and, and we won't invest in, you know, a name. I mean, one of our investments uh, that we are mostly out of now, but uh, it was, it's a company called GAN, um, kind of levered to the, um, uh, you know, tailwinds related to uh, iCasino and sports betting in the country. Uh, but, you know, they were, you know, uh, you know, comically mispriced in fourth quarter 2018 when we were buying it. Um, you just had legalization. There was, you know, uh, fundamentally it was clear the business was, you know, not just good, but, you know, accelerating. Um, that kind of proved out. But, you know, I knew from the beginning uh, that, you know, there was one of two exits, you know, from talking with the CEO which is either we're going to sell the company or we're going to uplist the NASDAQ and get a, a proper, you know, valuation. So uh, the point is, is that, you know, um, uh, as, you know, this kind of newfound reality that I'm not sure will change anytime soon, the way we dealt with that was to kind of, you know, tighten our search radius to whether it be a, you know, a special sit by definition, but especially on the general side, um, if it's a great business and it fits all those things and we have, you know, original qualitative insights that uh, where we feel like we have a, a real edge, um, you know, the, as Buffett said, you know, it's the qualitative insights that make the cash register sing. You know, we, we also were very quick to realize that um, we need to have a very clear idea of, you know, when it's going to work and why. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, so part of the analysis was not only finding, you know, the, that fact pattern that I, you know, just described earlier, which is hard enough, but finding one where um, there was a very high probability uh, hard catalyst there, you know, where, you know, the uh, liquidity driven flywheel that's been kind of propelling markets and individual securities would get, we get swept up in it, you know, within a, a reasonable time period. And, and that has allowed us to, you know, uh, kind of allow these secular trends to serve us, you know, rather than be victims of it. Uh, and it, it's made a, a huge difference. So, um, you know, while it would be wonderful, it's like, I don't even remember what it'd be like to have tailwinds, you know, you know, small value tailwinds and not hurricane force headwinds. Um, it'd be wonderful if it happens. Um, but, you know, we, uh, uh, you know, very much are, you know, we, we makes our job harder, but we, you know, don't want to have to depend on, you know, capital flows and, and things like that. Or, you know, let me put it this way. We, because of the nature of capital flows and their importance in driving markets today, um, we want to own, you know, small value stuff that's we find way off the beaten map, but, you know, they're cheap enough to where, and there's a hard catalyst there that will, you know, uh, force that convergence between price and value. And if we can't find that convergence of, you know, attractive characteristics, then we'll just sit in cash. Um, but uh, better sit in cash than lose people's money. So, um, you know, that's that. Look, I'll, I'll tell you, Ryan, right now, you that, that was an incredible answer that you just gave. I mean, you <laughs> literally just rattled off your process, strategy, philosophy, all in, in one nice bow of an anecdote right there, you know, because no, I mean, look, if it was incoherent and rantish, but <laughs> no, no, I, I, I was, I, 
Listen, hey, well, also you happen to use a, a, a recent name that happens to be very well followed right now. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I hope to eventually have on the microcap graduation series at, at some point. But, very you know, cool. Very cool. but, you know, what's what's I'd love to go through with you is kind of a similar thing, because, um, you know, when again, when we were preparing for this interview, you sent me over some great collateral. And one of the things that really just I mean, who am I to say this, you know, I, but it impressed me and I was excited to read it, you know, because most because most annual letters, I mean, you know, and, and this is no dig at anybody else. But, you know, they're that that nine, 10 pager kind of given the snapshot. Here's the companies we're invested in. Here's our overall outlook. I mean, you literally spend for your for your 2018 annual letter, literally a 60 plus pages on one idea. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and, it, was and big it, it was big. We had, you know, that, you know, if you're going to make it that big, you know, you got to, you know, if, if, if they come to you and they say, why, you know, this, this was kind of that answer. So, uh, right. Anyway, sorry to interject, but no, no, you, but I mean, but the, the thing that I'd love to hear and without, you know, us going through the entire letter, of course, you know, I'd love to hear you kind of break down your, your thought process. You know, you talked about GAN during the gaming industry, kind of seeing those, those secular trends happening right now, especially being in a pandemic, COVID-19, everything going on, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd love to just talk about that industry a little bit more, you know, sure. why that it attracted your attention and then kind of using your, your annual letter where you, you, you go, I, I don't even think, I don't even think the management at Nintendo uh, could go as in depth in their own business as <laughs> oh, you did on Nintendo. I, I'm certainly would not. <laughs> Hold on, let's, before we get into that, do you play Nintendo? That's really yes. the most, okay. All right. Well, we got to so, get that so, out of the way first. Well, so, you know, I'm, I'm 39. So, uh, I grew up, I mean, you know, Nintendo was, you know, a, a you know, deep part of my childhood. What was your game? What was your game? Oh, you Zelda. 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 All right. Yeah. Nice. Oh, yeah. No Donkey Kong? Did you yeah. play any Donkey Kong? Uh, I mean, I did, but, you know, like, I still remember getting the whistle in the eighth castle or the seventh or eighth <laughs> castle. Like it was, you know, uh, you know, it was, it was a high, you know, I, I think I ran around the block with my arm in the air. Uh, it was, oh, it was that awesome. big. So, yeah, so I, I always, you know, it, it, there was, you know, deep, you know, the guys at Ensemble wrote a great piece. Um, uh, Todd, uh, you know, talking about, in particular, yep. about uh, nostalgia. Um, and so uh, there's plenty of that there. Um, but, you know, that's kind of funny. I, I didn't play video games, you know, to any many meaningful degree for, you know, I don't know, 20 years almost. Uh, and it was in you know, doing this work and, and diving in, you know, to the business that, that not only brought me back to, uh, you know, I, I, I bought a Switch and uh, The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, the sequel, and, you know, it, it brought me back to, you know, I felt like I was a, a, an eight-year-old kid again. Um, I mean, it just, re it, this is going to sound ridiculous, but high art. I mean, just an absolute masterpiece uh, that, that blew my mind. Um, and so there's that. And then, you know, uh, just as part of the ongoing due diligence and research, you know, it's, uh, it's a necessity that I play some of these games, uh, you know, uh, you know, filed under research. Um, but, uh, yeah, a so lot of, re a lot I, of research. Good. Yeah. Research. Yeah. So, so yes, I, I do think that, you know, in many ways to appreciate, you know, who, who and what Nintendo is and, and what they do and, um, really, you know, uh, I think it's actually kind of fundamental to being able to do even the handicapping, you know, software game sales and things like that 
if you understand the game, if you understand the, the fans, the culture around it, why they love it, um, uh, in a lot of different ways, I think being a gamer and, and investing in Nintendo um, are, you know, necessities, if you will. Um, it's, it's not something like, say, you know, Sony, where there are, you know, different business segments and, and you know, uh, there's a, you know, they don't have a ton of first party IP. And, um, you know, if you want to understand the soul of Nintendo, you have to play the games. Um, and, you know, I think that that's kind of an important piece of it. But to your, I think your larger question, which is, you know, uh, what do you like about Nintendo and, and the video game industry? It's, it's kind of like being asked, you know, why do you love your mom? You know, uh, you know, where do you even begin? Uh, <laughs> and I don't say that facetiously, but uh, even no, after, you can be facetious. That's fine. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I can take, I can take facetious. <laughs> like you, you know, the, the stock is, I don't know, you know, we're up, you know, something like 75% since, you know, we, we originally built our position. And in many ways, I think it's just as incomprehensibly stupidly mispriced today, you know, as it was back then. Um, and, and this kind of ties back into, you know, a while, you know, if you were to look at our contribution of our fund performance, you know, all but, you know, probably 15% of it has all been, you know, small and, you know, mostly micro cap. Um, you know, Nintendo is an exception to our, our kind of general rule uh, where, you know, we, we don't pigeonhole and define our, so we don't have any type of, we have a go anywhere mandate, you know, we can do what's smart to do. It just so happens that most of the things that are, um, you know, we like most happen to be in the fertile soil of, of what I think is like the domestic capital markets, you know, last of truly efficient market, which you know, is the, you know, a liquid non-index small and micro cap space. Uh, but, you know, if, if we get hit, you know, uh, in the face with something that, you know, makes a ton of sense, you know, who cares if it's, you know, small or large or, you know, any of these other kind of, um, uh, uh, you know, distinctions that ultimately don't really matter to what we're trying to do, which is to preserve money and, you know, and the prudent compounding uh, of wealth as uh, one of my buddies, Shaidar Dashti, wrote in a, in a piece that he sent. But um, so, you know, with Nintendo, um, you know, and I, I should give, you know, the, I first came across it because of a, a good buddy of mine named Tuan who runs a firm in LA actually uh, called uh, 10 West. And you should, you should reach out and interview him. He is a uh, incredibly brilliant investor um, in many ways. Um, one of my, uh, you know, uh, he's one of my faves. Um, but I had read, he had sent me one of his letters and, you know, uh, he had gotten somewhat in depth to Nintendo, but uh, he, his work really opened my eyes to kind of the untapped value of its kind of peerless IP and how, um, you know, the, one of the things that, that is at the heart of what Crossroads does, you know, even within kind of the framework that I had, uh, you know, mentioned later is that, you know, in almost every one of our positions, inevitably, you know, the business that we are buying, you know, whether it's a special set or a general is undergoing some form of value unlocking change. Something about, you know, the past, you know, and the future, you know, have, you know, uh, there, there's just, you know, there, there's something going on that, that makes, you know, the old way of looking at the business, not the same, you know, in, incorrect when in terms of looking at the future. And, you know, he had kind of opened my eyes to a lot of things, you know, broadly. And, and even then, I, I still didn't buy the stock. I continued to read about it and learn about it. And I started, you know, following message boards and, and going through old, you know, call transcripts and 
um, just uh, on the side. And then one day, you know, I think the core insight, which I'll get into in a minute, um, just kind of hit me over the head. And I remember, you know, kind of frantically emailing Tuan and being like, you know, is, you know, do you see what I see? You know, and, you know, it was, if there could have, his response, if it could have been a big shitting grin, you know, you know, like that Jack Nicholson, you know, gif where he's smiling. Um, and so, you know, it was through, you know, just having, you know, this, this relationship and, you know, uh, a very smart investor that had, um, you know, was already involved that, you know, once, you know, the light bulb kind of clicked for me, um, we just started to, you know, dive into it. And the kind of the more I peeled the onion back, um, given the insights that, um, you know, we had discovered and, and verified and, Maybe we'd go back and find all, you know, quote, management quotes from, you know, if everything management said publicly for the last 10 years, you know, if not longer, you know, we went through it. Um, but, you know, kind of trying to build, see if this mosaic that we were seeing, you know, if we could support it by, you know, the underlying facts. So, um, anyhow, the, the, there's the two kind of, you know, high level things with the industry, which is obviously the structural tailwinds related to the digital transformation of the business. I'm sure most people reading, you know, or listening, excuse me, uh, to this will know exactly what I'm talking about, you know, plus the pandemic related tailwinds that come from, you know, uh, one of the things that I always loved about Nintendo is as a, as a form of entertainment, you know, we came up with what we call like a, a price to fun ratio, um, you know, and comparing it to other forms of, of entertainment um, and Nintendo's, you know, price to fun ratio was, you know, uh, dramatically cheaper than, you know, essentially all other forms of, of entertainment, you know, whether it be movies or music. Um, but uh, you know, Obviously, you know, one of the things like, for instance, in March, you know, we were running, uh, we had realized, you know, in fact, in a lot of ways, because of, of the themes that kind of ran through the portfolio, we were realizing, you know, kind of in the heat of it, that not only was, you know, uh, a, you know, a prolonged, you know, stay at home era from, you know, uh, the pandemic, not bad for our underlying businesses, but, you know, uh, you know, to the question of whether, you know, something can look cheap, you know, after it sells off, but, you know, if it's trading at five times earnings and earnings drop by 90%, that's not value. That's a value trap. Well, you know, we were looking at what we owned um, and, you know, this informed a lot of what we bought. Uh, the market was pricing these businesses, you know, that whose earnings power was stable and growing as if it was about to get cut in half. Um, and so, uh, uh, I can't remember where I was going with this outside of saying that, you know, uh, from a, a macro perspective, uh, a secular kind of megatrend perspective of uh, the tailwinds, you know, in particular the digitization tailwinds um, and the kind of new realities of our, you know, stay at home era today, um, you know, were very, very good things for these businesses. Um, with Nintendo in particular, the two main insights that I think, you know, it's kind of been remarkable. I mean, uh, you know, when we released the letter that I sent you, um, you know, it was for the most part, you know, the iterative, it basically centers on one insight. It, it's had nothing to do with mobile, uh, which, you know, for the last year and a half, I've had to bang my head against the table as people on FinTwit and, you know, uh, who, you know, who would ever have an, you know, a Nintendo 
uh, mobile centric thesis, you know, and why they would ever do that, knowing the culture and all these things. Um, I have no idea. Uh, you know, the Disney analogy is, you know, valid in, in some respects um, in that, you know, uh, as they have started to more properly utilize their IP, uh, you know, with theme parks and, and TVs and movies. Um, but the analogy only goes so as far as it's you know, supposed to go. Nintendo is not Disney. Nintendo, you know, I don't think anyone that understands um, the business has ever thought, you know, even though there's been a bunch of thought pieces that act like people think it's, you know, I mean, that's just not true. Um, uh, but uh, uh, so um, anyhow, I'm trying to think of where I got, I, I think I went off on, uh, what did I, where was I at before I brought in Disney? So I, I, here, let me bring you back. It, yeah, it, yeah. The, 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 main, the main point here is, you know, and this is to, to show your, your, the way in which you go about analyzing, not just an industry, but then so your stock selection is, you know, within the gaming industry, there's so many options you can choose from, right? I mean, right. you got EA, you got, all, all these, full disclosure, I'm not a shareholder in any of the companies that have been mentioned so far. Um, but, um, but why Nintendo? So, yeah, exactly. Like what, what was it about Nintendo? What was, when you had that phone call with, with your buddy, when he was like, do you see what I see? What was it that you saw? Yes. You know, so, and, and, that, and that got you, got you into it. Yeah, yeah, okay. So you're going to have to, you might have to reel me back when I get going. Because uh, once I start talking. Nintendo, it's hard because quite frankly, listen, Ryan, I'll tell you. Ryan doll and let me go. That's the thing. I mean, that's, look, you know the show well enough to know. I just let you go. I'm not going to stop <laughs> you, you know? So, and so I love it. I mean, because at the end of the day, what's what's important about the show and, and, and our interview today is that it gives insight into how you think about not just you know, investing, but also these industries, the companies and the thought process that you have. So, I mean, you know, I joke, I joke around that you have long letters and, and long yeah. stuff like that, but I think it's very indicative based on some of your answers already <laughs> yeah. so far. There's no stopping you. There's, 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 there's that's fine. There's and that's great. Of, yeah. There's lots of interesting, but the, the heart of it is two things. The, you know, for the first time after being scarred from, you know, the Super Mario movie in 92 and various other events where <laughs> Bob Hobson said he had to drink all day to get through the set. Uh, it was so bad. Um, but for years, <laughs> Nintendo had refused to, um, you know, it had this treasure trove of, of dormant IP that was just sitting there, you know, unmonetized. And, you know, with the new guard that had taken control um, in 2015, and, and this is where I kind of got off on the uh, on mobile and all that kind of stuff. So they, they had decided that, you know, they would now start to, you know, better utilize that IP and monetize it in ways outside of the core dedicated, you know, console business. So the, the, the traditional Tendo that we know. So that's where you get, you know, the mobile piece of it. That's where you get theme parks and TVs and movies and the kind of that Disney flywheel um, that builds uh, awareness for the core business. Um, and, you know, uh, familiarizes it with a much broader group of individuals and people. I mean, you know, Nintendo's IP is, you know, one of the few, um, uh, uh, you know, intellectual property portfolios in the world that is beloved, not just cross-culturally, um, but, you know, uh, across age groups, you know, young and old, um, Eastern, Western, um, you know, Nintendo is beloved and family friendly and, you know, the, the, you know, the ability to leverage it, you know, is valuable in ways that, that I think most 
um, you know, people, you know, owners of IP could only dream of. So um, the fact that they were starting to rev up that, you know, that treasure trove and start to properly monetize it in new ways uh, fundamentally said something about not only the changing of the guard in terms of culture, um, but, you know, the, the diversity, the sources, and the nature of these earning streams, you know, which would be by and large reoccurring, stable, um, and growing as opposed to, you know, uh, highly cyclical um, as video game, you know, console makers like, you know, uh, Nintendo were viewed in the past. So that was a key part of, of the insight. You know, the biggest insight, the insight that, you know, really is the insight above them all has to do with, um, you know, basically the, you know, the switch becoming the iPhone of video games. I mean, that, that's just a simple way to put it. Uh, you know, uh, there's only one, um, you know, now there's, you know, a couple, uh, you know, of our colleagues have, have, you know, come into the name and, and kind of see what I see. But in terms of like the broad thought leaders in the space, uh, Daniel Ahmad uh, is the only one that I think really gets it. But you know, there's a piece by Matthew Ball and, and lots of people I love and respect and I think their work is great. But, you know, I think, you know, they are so trapped in the past in this obsolete paradigm of, of thinking about Nintendo in a particular way. You know, it's, it's, it's like with Apple, you know, I mean, they're, you know, the stock went up a hundred times and people were still talking about whether, you know, uh, it competed on the base of its hardware and that margins were destined to collapse because, of low cost competition, which was not only the dumbest thesis in the history of mankind. Uh, I mean, it's a ticket to a larger ecosystem is what Apple is much like Nintendo. Uh, but, you know, it took 10 years for it to die. You know, I mean, like the, the way that they had viewed the business, it's, it's cyclical hit driven nature. Um, you know, it just, it, the, the underlying transformation of the business model wasn't recognized immediately. And, and so it is, I think with Nintendo, which is in the past, you know, this is basically how it worked. You know, you would release a system um, in Nintendo because, you know, it would, they would primarily bootstrap each console with their own games. Um, over time was having, you know, less and less success, uh, basically bootstrapping their console sales by the quality of their software. And so with the exception of the Wii, which is one of an outlier, you know, if you look at the trend in, you know, console sales, um, you know, it was not a good one. I mean, you know, their installed base was smaller and smaller with each successive generation. Um, and, you know, it was getting to the point where something needed to be done to, you know, change that, you know, boom bust, you know, uh, you know, every six, you know, in the past, every call it five to seven years, their installed base of users for each console would reset and drop to zero. And then Nintendo would have to roll the, you know, the console roulette table again, you know, and pray they have a hit, you know, to rebuild that installed base from scratch all over again. Well, what the Switch is, is a, you know, an iterative hardware model wrapped around a software, you know, based ecosystem, exactly like the iPhone. You know, when, when the iPhone 5 comes out and then the iPhone 7 you know, do you, do we, do we talk about next gen cell phones? No, it's preposterously no. stupid. You know, there is no next gen, you know, it's, it's simply, you know, and this is one of the keys, one of the key pieces of the larger mosaic uh, that caused the light bulb to go off. It's, you know, Nintendo, unlike past systems, isn't, you know, proprietary complex, it's hardware isn't proprietary and unique you know, to where, you know, in order to get prices down, you know, for, you know, the, uh, you know, to get economies of scale, you have to sell a ton of them. 
um, you know, with the switch, it's, in, you know, entire architecture from the bottom up is mobile. So that has profound consequences. It means that, you know, it rides the mobile, you know, technology and innovation curve. So, you know, when the switch was put together in, and, you know, originally designed in 2015 off base of basically 2013, uh, mobile technology, you know, we just within the last two days had confirmation of kind of the third leg of our larger thesis, which was the upcoming release of what I'm calling the Switch Pro. But what the Switch Pro is, is a much more powerful uh, system that is in line. I mean, the, the Microsoft tablet, uh, there's plenty of mobile-based technology out right now that is more powerful than the PS4 and the current gen of Sony and Microsoft systems. So um, anyhow, the, yeah, that and, you know, uh, as time passes, you know, the parts that, that make up the switch get cheaper, which allow them to either drop the price and expand the addressable market um, or keep more of the margin, you know, like Apple does and, and actually, you know, make hardware a, a big profit center. I, I think they'll probably drop the price um, to expand its user base because most of the money in, you know, uh, a business like Nintendo's dedicated console segment and, and Nintendo's business in general is a function of software sales. So, um, so the, the big insights, what did we know that other people didn't know and that most people still are you know, <laughs> completely oblivious to? It's that, you know, if you hear someone talk about peak earnings, switch peak earnings, just discount everything they say from now on. They don't know what they're talking about. If you hear people talk about mobile being the future, you know, earnings power, you know, or the earnings driver of Nintendo, like that is, you know, like it matters at all. You just discount everything they say because they don't get it. Um, you know, so much of what even Nintendo longs focus on um, misses the entire point, which is, you know, the Switch is the iPhone of video games. You know, over time, you know, it, 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 when I originally wrote the letter, a lot of this was conjecture. Um, you know, now this is fact. You know, we, but we, since then we've had the release of the Nintendo, uh, the Switch Lite. We've had an iterative update of the base model. Why would you annually upgrade the base model, you know, if, if this wasn't true, why would you have mobile architecture? Um, COVID uh, pushed back, and you're seeing this being reported in the news over the last two days, the release of the Pro, but this is kind of their final piece of their, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, good, better, best lineup uh, where the light is taking, basically sucking up, you know, the sales and the installed base of the 3DS, its prior system. Um, but it's becoming one single central ecosystem. And over time, you will see continuous upgrades along with technology that, that allows into a single form factor, um, you know, with ever increasing technology. I mean, when you look at the original iPhone and you look at, you know, like my Apple Watch, you know, it is absolutely mind blowing what, you know, the innovation and growth, you know, into what they've been able to create because of these forces underneath them. And so it will be with, you know, the Switch family. So uh, long story short, why do I like it? Even if you zero out the billions in cash, um, you know, their, you know, uh, uh, stake in Pokemon, arguably the most valuable IP in the world, their stake in the Seattle Mariners, uh, you make mobile a zero, you know, knock that out. Uh, I mean, you literally, you know, can walk through, you know, again and again and again, and just zero out everything. The, you know, the, the iPhoneization of the Switch, you know, the dedicated console segment alone, you know, is worth, I think, two to three X, you know, where it's currently trades today, despite being up quite a bit. Now, if, if any of the kind of, you know, never ending 
list of high impact free call options, you know, actually land in the money, whether that be mobile or TV or retail stores or, you know, all these things. Um, wonderful. We're going to make even more money. Um, but at the end of the day, um, if the switch family, the switch system is forever and indeed perpetual, like I believe it is. And, you know, today in these articles, they talk about how they think, you know, lifetime sales will surpass the DS. Well, that's 200 million units, not like the Wii, 100 million units. If that actually is true, and I, for the record, I do think it's true, then, you know, I think, you know, just, you know, the stock is a multi-bagger, um, uh, you know, from here, solely based on the value of its dedicated console segment, you know, zero out everything else, and you still get that. Should any of those call options, you know, drop, then, you know, we'll be very, very happy. But the key insight that most, you know, on the buy and sell side don't understand ultimately comes down to, you know, the iterative nature of the console and, and what that means related, you know, the, the hit driven cyclicality of the past no longer exists. And the, the business model, its core business model has transformed, you know, from kind of a boom bust paradigm into a, a very stable reoccurring, you know, kind of secular growth juggernaut that um, deserves to be valued, you know, uh, in line with, you know, what it is, if that makes sense. If that's the case, then we will, you know, both Crossroads and our, all of our investors will be very, very happy. But, um, you know, it's not too late, I guess, is what I would say there. You know, the, the biggest and best insight is still about as foreign as it gets. You know, um, you know the, the key to seeing the future, I think, you know, what, you know, this is a quote from my buddy Tuan yeah, that he had one of his letters is, you know, um, being a visionary isn't, you know, any ability or gift to, to see into the future. It's simply understanding the present reality better than every other people. You know, it's not about seeing around bends, you know, as much as understanding, you know, the present as it actually is. And if you do that, then the rest follows. Um, so that's, I think, the big uh, kind of core foundational insight with Nintendo. That makes sense. I think that's a core foundational insight that I would assume that's what you take with you to each potential investment yes. that you look at. Yes. I think that's the main thing that we were trying to get at just now. And um, wow, I, I've Sorry never- Sorry for a long rant. I'm not sure- No, don't out. apologize. I mean, look, I don't think I ever know more about Nintendo than even if I went and played the frigging game at this, <laughs> or at the, anything other than what I just listened to right now. I mean, that, that was that was- you know, it's a very cool company. It's a very cool business, uh, and we were very lucky to find it at a uh, at a, an inflection point that was very very special. Yeah. So, all right. So I want to switch gears on you. So yep. and uh, and for all those listening, that is my daughter in the background, uh, probably wrestling <laughs> with with some food. So um, I, I I wanted to switch gears because in prep for this interview, you also sent me the letter to uh, the board of directors of Sears hometown and outlet stores. Yes. Now, the reason I want to bring this up is not necessarily to, I mean, I'm sure you'll go through the story and it's very interesting, but the main reason that I, that I wanted to bring this up is because, you know, this question about really this speaking to the mind of as a shareholder and really owning a business, you know, not just owning a stock, owning a business. And however big or small of an investor that you are, it's, you know, this idea of needing to speak up when you see something happening that could directly affect, um, you know, 
you realizing or the company realizing its value? You know, so let, let's get into it. Can you explain what this letter was about, why you did it, and why, why it was important for you to, to put that out there? Sure, sure. Um, I know we've been running a little long, so I'll, I'll try and, um, you know, keep it short. So, uh, you know, we presented, you know, the idea for the first time. I think it was Best Ideas, you know, um, uh, MOI Global's Best Ideas Conference in January of 2018. Uh, you know, at that point, you know, you mentioned Sears or Eddie Lamp or anything and you get a, you know, people's puke in their mouth a little bit, you know, just immediately on the, you know, suggestion. Well, um, you know, at that point, and we'd done, a, uh, we'd never owned Sears Holdings, um, but, you know, we had, I, I had kind of followed and studied, you know, Eddie Lampert's um, history and background and, and capital allocation. And, you know, for, you know, all of his mistakes, I, I you know, at least at the time, I, I kind of considered, you know, him still kind of fundamentally honest that operated in a way that, you know, um, uh, had quite a bit of integrity. Well, uh, with show, you know, the insight with this business was, you know, uh, it had a very unique arrangement where it's, you know, franchisees. Um, you know, there was a lot of value trapped in the inventory of its franchisee base. And, you know, normally, you know, if you were to, uh, it was basically held on consignment. So uh, instead of, you know, what typical retailer were, say you were to shut down, you'd have all these fixed costs and, you know, whatever value there was in the inventory would get eaten away um, and, you know, would not be a source of, you know, uh, tangible cash that, you know, could be realized upon, you know, liquidating or shutting down stores. Well, with shows, it had two segments. It had one called outlets, which was an inventory liquidation channel for appliances, you know, so think of TJ Maxx or Ross stores for clothes, um, yeah, but for appliances, it was the market leader. It had been through a multi-year turnaround and it was just starting to generate cash. It was a fundamentally very, very good business that was being valued, valued at zero. Um, the other segment was this, you know, hometown segment, which had not been burning a ton of cash, but, you know, over the, you know, the prior year and a half, that cash burn had accelerated substantially. And, you know, we had, you know, thought that there was, you know, I don't know, we'll just say, say I don't have it in front of me, but in the presentation, we, we outlined our liquidation value, which by the way, was, uh, we had worked with, you know, the CFO who used to work for ESL and he had taught, he had taught me, you know, uh, how to, um, you know, not only understand the liquidation, liquidation economics, but to calculate it to a very precise degree of, uh, of, you know, uh, you know, true value, if you will, which is, which came to be, you know, quite ironic, ironic in time. Um, but, you know, long story short is if you just, while there were better ways and we, you know, had talked and tried to get, uh, management, um, you know, through Lamper to, you know, either sell. There was, there was a lot of ways that the, the hometown uh, store base, this is the small town, you know, USA stores where the uh, inventory was held. Um, you didn't have to, th there were ways to realize the value of that inventory without shutting down their life businesses. But long story short is, you know, whatever the future brung, we, you know, we thought, you know, as Charlie Munger said, and, and this was actually, I should have listened a little bit more deeply to what he was saying, but, you know, you show me the incentive, I'll show you the outcome. Well, you know, with the cash burn at the hometown segment accelerating, we figured he would do the rational thing, which is, you know, kind of defined his entire career, 
and move to you know shut down the segment and pull all that trapped working capital out of the business into cash, um, which would be a multiple of you know kind of what we are paying you know that we presented in there. So and then we would get this great gem of a business that was right in the heart of a turnaround for free. Well, well that didn't happen. Uh, you know Eddie turned you know uh, he you know he's a, a famous uh, it's not really my thing but a famous Ayn Rand acolyte. Um, you know, instead of being, you know, John Galt, he was more like Wesley Mooch um, and proceeded to take, do a take under um, <laughs> basically the most disgusting asset stripping, uh, you know, intellectually dishonest take under of our shares that I've ever seen as a public investor. Um, and it was, you know, particularly horrifying because, you know, in some sense, I'd looked up to him. Um, you know, uh, on the deck that I did for MLI Global, I, I use a, uh, one of his quotes, you know, that kind of, sp- you know, speaks to not only his integrity, but having the will to see out, um, you know, kind of longer term, harder pass. And, uh, you know, it's almost funny looking at it now, but, um, you know, he tried to take under the company, two of the board representatives uh, with any balls uh, stood up to him, uh, you know, and basically said, hell no. Uh, you know, you can sell it ironically enough. They actually hired a third party investment bank, um, you know, to, to do the valuation analysis. And, you know, uh, in, I, in the letter, I kind of go through and I show that literally the third party investment bank management, um, our own work, you know, to a T, um, you know, had can show without a, using their own financial statements. Uh, that, you know, the liquidation value of this segment, you know, equals for the whole company, let's just say, uh, somewhere between seven and nine dollars a share. It's not all exact, but you know the stock was at two at the time, and then you have this great business over here for free. Um, the board stood up to him. Uh, he immediately changed the board's bylaws, fired him, stacked the board with cronies, um, and you know uh, the the letter gets into all the sordid details. But it, it was one of those things that just kind of shocked the shit out of us, uh, and we just never imagined he would go to such lengths. Um, you know, to basically transfer our wealth into his pocket. And, and the answer, why was he doing that? And we lay this out in the letter, you know, all of his, you know, he had billions of dollars invested in Sears Holdings, which was now bankrupt and called Transform Company. And he was basically, he basically needed the inventory and, you know, he needed these assets to save, you know, and it was kind of like Captain Ahab quest to control show so he could take all that excess value and use it to kind of, prop up his, you know, deranged um, commitment to, you know, turning around, you know, Sears proper. Um, That's a a kind of a gross oversimplification, but it speaks to the dangers of, you know, especially in the small and micro cap space, which is, you know, if you're not a multi-billion dollar fund that has not only the resources to to fight, you know, in court, um, but the ability to you know, it would be one thing if, you know, this is where the trust and one of the many lessons learned that we took away, which is I just never, of all the scenario analysis we ran, the one where he basically backstabs the people that actually believed and trusted in him, you know, to do the right thing and turn the business around and, 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 and realize its full intrinsic value um, in full, um, you know, he, you know, that value was there. Um, as, you know, multiple independent third party sources up to the point where the board was, you know, uh, you know, structurally, you know, rearranged and wiped with, you know, put back in or stacked with cronies. Um, but, you know, he, you know, he had the power, his calculus was that no one was gonna, 
given the market cap and what was at stake, was going to was going to fight him on it. I mean, it, it was very Professor Moriarty genius, you know, in a lot of ways, and he got away with it. So, you know, if there's one thing in the small and in micro cap space that I would hammer home, it's it's you know, management. I don't care how something how cheap something is, is if management isn't going to return that cash to you um, or otherwise act in a way. Um, to unlock that value, then, you know, it's, it's nuts, you know, to expect the market to re-rate, you know, a business, especially when you have kind of bad actors um, or, you know, it's, uh, you know, say a uh, very capital intensive business, you know, there are scenarios, but the, the point is, is management in this space as a, as a, when you're an outside passive minority investor, um, their character, their integrity, um, you know, uh, their, you know, uh, human with respect to capital allocation is everything. Um, so, uh, you know, beware, caveat emptor, uh, even when they're famous, you know, value investors, you know, uh, things can go wildly wrong. I mean, we, we were lucky, you know, he eventually, uh, the most, you know, dis disgusting thing of what he did was, was related to, to uh, outlets. He ran, he said he would do a third party bid um, you know, an auction for the outlets business. And if no one, um, uh, you know, made an offer, you know, over basically, he admitted that it was worth X, which is, you know, amusing. Um, and then he said, if it was, you know, no one made a bid over this amount, then, you know, he would absorb it for free. So, yeah, so you heard that right. He said, this business is worth at least this. If someone doesn't pay me X, then, you know, then I'm going to get it for free. Ha, ha, ha. Um, and, you know, he was able to, you know, who knows, I wouldn't be surprised if the private equity firm that actually bought it wasn't, it wasn't Lampert's money in that, you know, uh, vehicle. You know, obviously I can't prove it. It's gone and behind me, we've moved on and we made money. Uh, you know, we came out with a decent IRR, but it was a, it was not worth the heartburn. Um, and it taught me a hell of a lot, you know, a lot of the things that I've, that I've known for years, but it was uh, like so many things in this business, you know, you get kicked in the nuts and, you try and learn from it and then you think you're clever and you found some way around it and then you get kicked in the nuts a new way. Um, that's kind of what this is, you know, uh, partner with people you admire and trust and, you know, that have paper trails that, you know, are worthy of your scarce capital. Uh, that's, that's what I would say is the big lesson from there. Yeah. I mean, I would say it sounds like that was one of the more uh, impactful investing experiences uh, for your career. You know, I mean, yeah. Right. I mean, definitely. no doubt. Definitely. There's been, there's been, there's been a few crazy ones, but uh, it taught me a lot. Um, and a lot of the naivete, um, you know, again, incentives, focus on incentives. You're going to, you know, you, actions are, are almost always, you know, a, a direct result of the way people are incentivized to act. And, uh, you know, given the amount of money he had in Sears Holdings relative to a relatively nothing stake in Sears hometown and outlets, uh, in retrospect, you know, I think trusting him on any level was dumb, just simply based on the fact that, you know, if he has to choose between, if he has to screw us to save a billion and a half dollars by lighting on hat, you know, on fire, the other, you know, half of his equity, which is, you know, let's just say 50 million, you know, he's going to choose to screw us and, and save the billion. Um, and that's kind of what happened. So Ryan, we're, we're about there, you know, and we're about to close out the interview, but I, I want to end this differently than I've done with any other interview, because this is, this has been very singular and, and something I've recognized. 
And I, I might be projecting here, but you know, what would you say is your, your favorite part about investing? Because quite frankly, what I hear right now is that you just love the game. Yes. Yeah, money, making money's fun. You know, that's obviously part of it. But I think the one thing that's totally majorly yeah. clear is yeah. that it's the game. Yeah, you. yeah, yeah. The, you know, money is ultimately, you know, I mean, that stuff comes. But, you know, I mean, where else, you know, you know, the investing is part, you know, investigative journalist, part detective, part, um, uh, you know, I mean, like the, the, you know, it's very much, you know, my job as an investor is to, you know, uh, find things and figure out how everything works. And, you know, in figuring out how everything works, find big discrepancies between kind of perception and reality as it comes to uh, the stock price. And, you know, from the beginning, uh, you know, I've always been, you know, I've always been, you know, the truth has always mattered to me. Uh, you know, I've always liked figuring, you know, I've always been curious. I've always liked figuring out how things work. Um, and, you know, in many ways, you know, investing is kind of, uh, you know, uh, you're speaking of Nintendo, it's, it's the greatest game on earth. Um, you know, and, you know, it's, it's doing the research, reading, learning, you know, uh, I just, it's something I've been very, very blessed to do for a living. And I love, with a unhealthy passion, um, you know, if like anything in life, if you're lucky enough to, you know, tap dance to work every day and, and you're thinking about work in the shower, um, you know, you're a very lucky person. So, you know, I'm just glad I get to do what I love. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not even like work in, in many respects. Uh, and that's pretty cool. You know? I, I, hey, you just gave me the tagline for our interview just now. I did, you know, investing is the greatest game on earth. I, 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 I couldn't agree more. I mean, come on, man. It's just too, it's too much fun. It's just so much fun. You know, it's like. can't create a game like this. Yeah. Yeah. So. No, I mean, I mean, well, maybe, who knows? Maybe one day I'm going to talk to him. We'll see, you know. Yeah, but, uh, anyone can do it. Me, Miyamoto might be able to figure it out, but, you know, I don't know. That's true. This is true. All right. All right, dude. Well, let's, let's leave it right there. Where can my audience go and find more information about you, Crossroads Capital, follow you on social media. Let's give those, uh, give sure. all that. Um, website is crossroadscapital.io, not.com. Um, that was taken and I'm still annoyed about it, but, uh, you know, that's <laughs> where you can find our, our main website. Um, social media, uh, I have a Twitter account, uh, at above our average odds. I think it's ABV. AVG or above ABOVE AVGODDDS. Um, but uh, you know, you should be able to find plenty of stuff there between those two spots. I'm double checking for you just to make sure. Yeah, above, good, good, good and, uh, there we go. Yeah, that's right. Above ABOVE AVG odds ODDS. That is your profile on Twitter. And Ryan, this was. So much fun. I feel yeah, like we could go, I feel like we got anecdotes for days that you could go through. I'm I, and they make my job here. I just I just serve it up and you free I, I just I lob it up. Excuse me, I lob it up and you freaking slam it home. So that was I, I, that was I a hope, lot of fun. I hope it was, you know, uh you know, I hope people enjoy it. So I for can't sure. wait to do it again. We gotta do this again soon. 
Very true. One last thing for full disclosure, even though I know you made it clear earlier, do you own any of the companies that you named on here? I'm Nintendo, of course. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, I still own a, an enormous amount of Nintendo. Uh, I own a small amount of GAN uh, at, that is part of a covered call position that uh, for the most part I'm out of and I no longer own Sears Hometown and Outlets. Perfect. All right. Well, with that, Ryan, it was an absolute pleasure, man. Look, it's nighttime where I am now. That was that. that was, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, thank you, dude. I really do appreciate it. Yep. Till next time, buddy. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc. and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Podcast.